Welcome to Shelve Under Podcast, the Toronto Public Library podcast for readers, writers, and lovers of wine and cheese. That's right, today we're having a book club. My name is Mike, and I'll be joined by my colleagues Eunice, Jason, and Wendy to talk about Girl, Woman, Other by Bernardine Evaristo, the co-winner of the 2019 Man Booker Prize. Uh, So because we are having a book club today, uh, just a general warning that we are going into spoilers. So if you have not read the book yet and you think you may want to, you can head over to Overdrive and get an always available copy and then come back to this episode and listen after. Um, Or you can just listen to us and have it spoiled, uh, but we'll still recommend reading it afterwards as well. So I'm just going to introduce my colleagues today who are joining me. Uh, So Wendy, hello and welcome. Hi, Mike. How's it going? I'm all right. How are you? Pretty good. And Jason's here as well. Hey, Jason. Hey, Mike. And we have a special guest today, Eunice. Uh, Eunice, if you want to introduce yourself and let everyone know what you do for the library. Yes, thank you, Mike. My name is Eunice Rodriguez. I am an adult services librarian at the library. I am passionate about issues on equity and social justice. I used to be the past co-chair of the Equity and Diversity Group for Employees at Toronto Public Library. I love reading. I'm also a presenter for Talk About Books. And Talk About Books is run like a book club. You have staff presenting books on different genres and topics. It's also a good way for our readers to find out about their next best read, whether it be uh, a different author or any different topics that they're interested on. That's great. We're so happy to have you join us today. So thanks again. Um, and just for anyone who may be listening to this, Bernadine Evaristo will be in conversation uh, with Donna Bailey Nurse as part of our Appel Salon online programming. Um, so if you have listened to this and you want to hear what Bernadine herself has to say about Girl, Woman, Other, the program with Bernadine Evaristo and Donna Bailey Nurse will be available online um, afterwards for people that want to go view that and we'll be linking to that in the show notes as well. Um, So just in case people haven't read the book yet um, but are still going to be listening to it, Wendy, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an introduction to Girl, Woman, Other. Sure. Um, so Girl, Woman, Other, as you mentioned, it won the Man Booker Prize last year. And somewhat controversially, it co-won that prize with um, The Testaments by Margaret Atwood. It's the first time that a uh, a woman of color has won the Booker Prize. And it's also the first time that the Booker Prize has been co-awarded. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of discussion about that last year. Um, and and it's been it's been sort of a, a hot topic. I you know we just read it for the book club and it's a, a fantastic book. Um, it's a book about 
a dozen loosely inter interconnected British women of color who all know each other in different ways. Uh, they range from a 20-something uh, Instagram influencer to a 94-year-old farmer. Um, the book is set up as, as a series of sort of sh almost like short stories about each of their lives. Um, and in some cases, it covers their lives from, from early childhood through to, you know, towards the ends of their lives. Um, and then they all come together at the end um, to see a play that was written by one of the characters. So that's sort of it in a nutshell. But of course, it goes, there's a lot more to it than that. And we're going to go into it uh, during our discussion. Yes. And uh, the book also has an interesting format um, where I'm not sure if there's a single period throughout the book. Um, it has this sort of free-flowing, um, almost poetic feel to it. Um, so Jason, I'm going to throw this first question to you, uh, which was how did the format of the book impact how you read it? I felt like, I, I've said this, and it, it gave me a bit of trouble at first. Um, but, you know, I'm going to modify what I've said previously. The way that it's written it is very interesting, and it kind of flows. It is, as you say, very poetic. So it's almost like there's a meter to it in the way that she chose to construct her sentences. And there is not really any punctuation much involved in the way that it's told. It's usually told from a singular perspective. Sometimes there's dialogue, but for the most part, there's not really. Um, but I was going to add to that. It's like, it is like a lot of books where you have to kind of lock into the character's perspective before you get really comfortable with it. So for me at first, I was really struggling to get used to this different way of writing. And it, whenever somebody has a very strong um, way of presenting the characters, I'm even going to say kind of like William Faulkner, how he likes to write in certain kinds of character voices and using particular accents and such. Not that she does that, but she does use a particular kind of form for the way that she's written this book, which takes a little bit of getting used to, but it's really worth it in the end, I think. I have to say, you know, when I first started reading it, I was concerned there was no capitalization at the beginning of the sentence. There were no periods at the end. It took me a while to get into the groove of what uh, her prose was trying to accomplish. Um, having said that, after about three or four chapters into the book, I, I got used to the style of writing. I have to say the flow of her prose feels, you know, right, especially when you think of the pace of the book and how it slowly moves on to the different characters. Um, specifically, you know, the layout of words is something that I wanted to mention. For example, when Penelope is told on her 16th birthday, um, she's, men she's, men she's told that she's a foundling. Um, it was the line breaks that I particularly liked that show her emotional unraveling. And it says, the feeling of being slash un slash moored slash unwanted slash unloved slash undone slash a no one. And I thought that was so poetic, you know, that capturing of those range of emotions and not just the emotions, but also the words with that slash. Uh, it gives you a sort of, um, how should I say it? Um, it, it layers those feelings and those words on top of each other. It is a profound uh, poetic effect. So it does come eventually, 
but it will be there as you read along. The, the, the initial bumpy ride that a reader feels just builds up to something that just flows towards the end. There's definitely an adjustment in terms of like, you're aware um, that every word has been chosen and every placement seems to have been chosen very carefully as well. And that just indicates a strong voice. So it's just adjusting to that, I think. Agreed. Yeah, it kind of feels like it's meant to be a sort of free-flowing experience for a while, but then there are these moments where she does does use this format she's created to to really build in breaths almost, um, which I think Eunice is sort of talking about, and I think I think that was a great example of one of those times where you're you're forced to slow down because you're you have to sort of take a breath at the end of each line and before you go on to the next one. That's true. That's true. You know, at the end of each line, sometimes I almost had to go back to that line to uh, savor that feeling of you know, the words, the sentence structure. It was a wonderful uh, reading experience, truly. Yeah. Does Does anyone know, has Bernardine Evaristo, I should have looked this up before, um, does, does she write poetry as well? Or um, is she strictly a fiction writer? I believe she's strictly fiction, though I could be wrong. Uh, I did read. I did watch an interview with her um, in sort of preparation for this, and she she did say she wanted the book to have sort of the, the feel of poetry, um, but but she doesn't think of it as as poetry. It does feel like a true hybrid that way. Yeah, I I, I think it is kind of a combination of both, but definitely it does skew towards the the pro side. But there is that kind of quality to it for sure. I I did look at. Um... She did write a short story called The First Feminists. And uh, she has the same writing, not really the same writing style as the book we're reading now. But, you know, um, no capitalization, uh, no periods, um, short paragraphs. And this is uh, this is an excellent read. The First Feminists, a short story by Bernadine Evaristo. So we could probably spend this whole episode just talking about the form and style of this book. Um, but we do have a book that's focused on sort of 12 different characters um, who each sort of get their own chapters. Um, so Eunice, I was wondering what character stood out to you the most or who was your favorite character? Um, so my favorite character was Boomi. And um, because Boomi is trying to raise her daughter, Carol, in such a way that she does not want her to forget her Nigerian roots. And, um, you know, the book mentions how Carol is trying to hide her working class immigrant background uh, from her peers. She goes to an elite university. So um, what I really liked is, you know, the little uh, specific examples that are provided. For example, here, Bumi is rejecting her daughter's British accent. And she mentions Carol was speaking out of her nose like there was a sneeze trapped up it instead of the powerful vibrations of her Nigerian vocal power. So uh, Everesto uses humor, which is also evident um, through in this example. There's a constant reinforcing of, you know, wanting her daughter to accept her Nigerian background. So she mentions that her daughter should acquire a high-flying job and a respectable Nigerian husband. And then she makes a comment again. She says, you know, remember, Carol, you are a Nigerian and not one of those tarty English girls. Um, there is also, you know, mention of her 
Naichi, sorry, her immigrant experience. She has a first class degree in mathematics from the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. It is considered a third world country when she comes to England and it means nothing that first class degree in mathematics, especially when her name and her nationality are attached to that degree. Um, for these reasons, Bumi names her daughter Carol without a Nigerian name because Bumi experiences the rejection that comes firsthand from having a name that does not sound uh, English enough. Um, there is also the use of a Nigerian pigeon for that chapter, for Bumi's chapter. So, um, for example, Carol comes and tells her mom that she's going to marry a white man. And I love the language that's used when uh, Bumi says, why you like today like cause so much wahala for me, eh? You don't spit on top your papa life, which kind of shame you want to bring on this family. I know sabi you at all, at all. And so I had to look up, you know, these words, wahala, which means problem. Uh, sabi, I know, I know sabi you at all. I know like you at all. Um, so I thought that was really fascinating. Uh, Everesto using this Nigerian pigeon in the book. It made me want to find out more about these words and the sounds. Um, there is a part that I would like to read where Bumi talks to her daughter and says, my point is that you are Nigerian, no matter how high and mighty you think you are, no matter how English, English your future husband, no matter how English, English you yourself pretend to be. What is more, if you address me as mother ever again, I will beat you until you are dripping wet with blood and then I will hang you upside down over the balcony with the washing to dry. I be your mama now and forever. Never forget that. Abi, and I, Abi means, you know, that's it. I have the final word. So, uh, yes, Bumi was my favorite character for those various reasons uh, that I've mentioned. I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop here. That's a that's a fantastic quote. I I, I love that she she really doesn't mince words. Yeah, you actually uh, picked the part that I had highlighted as well um, because I I loved Bumi and I loved the juxtaposition of after Carol's chapter um, where where Bumi kind of comes off as as the hard nosed parent who who you know isn't letting her daughter be who Carol wants to be and and isn't letting Nessie Carol express herself. Then you get the flip side of of that experience in Bumi's chapter, and and you sort of understand her perspective more, and and you also understand that still she has so much love for Carol, um, and so so I completely agree with you. That was Bumi was my favorite character as well. Uh, Jason, who was your favorite? I I agree with everything that was said about Bumi. She's a great character. For me, um, I really because some of this book can be kind of heavier. Um, I really enjoyed those moments of kind of satire, I'll say, because there are these moments where uh, Bernadine Everesto seems to want to um, poke a little fun at some of this stuff. So for that, my favorite character is Yaz. <laughs> I really liked Yaz, who is the daughter of Emma, who is basically the, sec the first character in the book, who is the one who writes the play. Um, and her daughter, Yaz, is kind of presented as this very hardworking, dedicated, uh, focused person who's very kind of self-righteous and wants to change the world, but 
is kind of almost naive about it in terms of wanting to just do everything and expect everything will fall into her lap. She constantly is on this refrain of how she's going to be the reporter who changes the world. And I, I really enjoyed the way that it's, it's presented as not that it's ridiculous, but just her, the way that she expects that it will just fall into line for her and the way that she judges the friends, because she's got this friend group of people around her and she's very quick to kind of not sneer at them exactly, but, to kind of find ways to separate herself from most of them because they're not exactly like her. Some of them have a little bit more money or they're like gaming the system. One of them has, uh, is writing, has hired somebody to write her papers for her essentially and do all of her work. And she's like, that's unacceptable. You can't do that. Like she's like just betrayed. And she actually feels this betrayal coming through and you know, when it's her turn to kind of um, guide the narrative, it's very written in this kind of over-the-top style a little bit. And it was very, very enjoyable for me to see this perspective of this character who's kind of wants to be so many things and is just kind of going through a stage where we all kind of go through at some point where we all want to change the world and make it better and have very high standards for ourselves. But looking back, I think we all kind of blush a little bit (laughs) thinking about that period of our lives. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's my favorite character. Yeah. She's sort of the quintessential teenager. That was definitely a, a sort of no holds barred chapter and, and give you a, a good sense of where Evaristo is trying to go. Uh, Wendy, your favorite character or somebody who stuck out to you? So I was thinking about this because I liked a lot of the characters a lot and I, I agree with all of you. Like Boomy was a great character and I, I really liked Carol too. Carol was really intriguing to me and Yaz was great. Um, but the one who really wound up sticking with me, who I kept on thinking about afterwards was Shirley actually. And uh, so I was trying to justify this to myself and I went back to look at the book and I realized that Shirley's sort of, okay, so Shirley is, um, she starts out as, Amma's best friend in school. Amma is the playwright who sort of brings everyone together, who has the first chapter of the book, and she's sort of a very central character. Uh, Shirley is her childhood friend. Uh, they start off as the two the two people of color in their school, um, and they're sort of thrown together by those circumstances, but then they develop a true friendship, um, which kind of morphs in adulthood into Amma expecting Shirley to provide free childcare for her a lot and stuff like that. It's not a completely... Uh, a completely fair reciprocal friendship but um but then on the other hand Shirley sees Emma as her sort of cool bohemian friend who makes her life more interesting and edgy so it kind of works out um so Shirley becomes a teacher uh she works in sort of an inner city like a sort of rough inner city school and she starts off as this really great teacher she's determined to make a difference in the lives of her students she, she sort of sees herself as a bit of a savior to the kids in her school and that sort of thing. Um, and the thing I really like about Shirley, and, well, oh, and then th- because the school is really, um, is really tough, uh, she becomes sort of hardened and embittered, embittered over time uh, and winds up not being quite as, uh, as sort of shiny as she seems in the beginning. Um, and the other thing is that um, the thing I wound up really liking about Shirley as a character is she has a lot of great aspirations and she tries really hard to be a good person and things keep on not quite working out for her uh, the way the way she she envisions them um, and I found that really human and really relatable uh, there's a line 
early in her chapter or early in her section where uh, she she says something about uh, wanting to be uh, an ambassador for all black people. And um, this is a theme that comes up again in the book. I think we're probably going to be talking about this some more later on. Um, the idea that uh, one one person has to bear this sort of burden of representing everybody in their cultural group, you know, and the sort of unfairness of that. But she sort of takes it on as this mantle. I feel like with Shirley, there are all of these good intentions and they're constantly being compromised by forces beyond her control. And I, I feel like that sort of undercuts that whole idea of having to be an ambassador for all of your people. You know, she's what she is as a human being. She's a complex human being whose life is going in all kinds of different ways that she doesn't entirely control. Um, and and I found her really relatable and really likable because of that. Well, Wendy, um, and we've talked a bit about some of the characters in this book, but I was wondering why you think Evaristo chose to write about so many characters um, rather than just focusing on one or two, um, and why I mainly focus on female characters as well. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. To me, it goes... One thing I kept on thinking about over and over again as I was reading this was that that question of the burden of representation, like the the idea when Shirley says that she's the ambassador to all black people, for example, you know, um, that, you know, no one person can ever be that and no one person should have to feel like they are that. Um, and yet that's something that that happens uh, in 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 a racist world. You know, there's there's this assumption that some people are going to have to bear that burden. Um and I think Evaristo is undermining that. Like, I feel like she's she's created all of these very different, very individual, um, peculiar people with very different autobiography, like very different biographies, very different life stories um, who do all have, you know, they have race and gender in common um, in some sense. Well, more or less. Um, but they're all so different from each other that it sort of undercuts this idea that that one, you know, that, that you can stereotype people or or say make any blanket statement about any group of people. Um, you really can't. They're they're all they're all unique. They're all complex and different from each other. And I think that's part that's and that's so that's why I think she she did that. And then why they're all women. I. That's a good question. Does anyone else want to take that one on? I mean, I want to add to what you said a little bit about they're all different, but I feel like there's this common undercurrent of feeling like they are representing the entire race or the entire gender over and over again with all of these characters in different ways and how they all kind of snap back against that in different points in different ways or they resent it or how they react to being uh, represented that way, but also backlashing against other women or other people of color as a result of that. For instance, like Yaz is very, as um, is thinks her parents are bourgeoisie <laughs> and she thinks they're both like fakes basically. And they're not really representing people or um, there's just a lot of examples of that or people hating on aspects of black culture or women or other women or rich or poor or what have you. And that's just a representation of that. And I think it is kind of part of the title and why she wanted to write this is this girl, woman, other statement is specifically about how those three terms have applied to all of these different characters. 
Um, with the exception of Roland, I suppose, but he still would fit into the, the other category, I think. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's just about representing this particular group and subset of people. And that's why it is laid out that way. And I agree, Jason, I believe that um, she is choosing to write about so many characters because she's celebrating the mix of race, mm -hmm. which is in all of our DNA. And she's trying to capture this shared experience that makes it makes all of us what we are. And as she puts it, you know, so well in her dedication, we are all members of the human family. So she's presenting a rich range or spectrum of characters that have each their own set of issues. It is a very fascinating to see how each of these people grapple with all of these issues without feeling pity for themselves. Now, why does she focus? mainly on female characters? Um, that's a really good question. Um, Everesto is a feminist um, and her writing focuses mainly on female characters. And again, I'm going to go back to, uh, you know, the uh, short story where she writes, the short story that's called The First Feminists. And there is, um, there is a little part that I, I could read if I could. It says, we women were equal to men. It was only mothering that tethered our ambitions when it became our sole responsibility because men liked power so much they wanted to keep it all for themselves that before then child rearing was shared equally between all of us shared between our clan um there's another sentence we women fought back we never stopped fighting back sometimes we won and men were forced to live in a matriarchal society other times men won and we lived in a patriarchy sometimes neither dominated and we were eg egalitarian which was ideal we were the first communists but it never lasted long so um, she's bringing all these uh, all these perspectives about women being a feminist, and um, she has very strong opinions. It is wonderful to see, and it is I, I would say it's almost natural that women become the main characters uh, in a book, in her books. She relegates um, the men uh, to to I wouldn't say footnotes, but they don't have any central characters because she does believe in the power of women, if I could sum it up that way. I would also say, though, I mean, she's kind of uh, showing that these characters don't, the male characters don't play a central life for these people, for the most part. Exactly. When you, when you consider the fathers of a lot of the characters, they're very either distant or removed or they actually aren't there at all. Or they're kind of in this status of they're distant in emotional or physical or social sense or something, right? Even Roland is guilty of that, right? He loves his daughter, but he keeps away from her. And she doesn't have that feeling for him the same way that she could. And if you look at some of the other father characters, like Shirley's husband's a perfect example of that, right? Like he, she thinks he's this, but he's not. He's actually removed and far away. And he's done these things that completely tarnish how she sees him. Yeah, there's another um, aspect of this that I, that I kept thinking about as well. I, I think I was, I was telling you guys the other day when we were talking. A couple of years ago, um, I decided to start only reading books by women um, because I realized that all of my favorite books were by male writers and mostly white male writers. And I was thinking, you know, I should probably just break out of that and see what happens. And and it was interesting because after a few months of that, of reading a lot of books all by women, I started to feel differently about myself. Um, 
and about the world. I, I sort of I found myself sort of taking my own side more and thinking less of myself from outside and more from inside. And and I think that in a way, um, what Evaristo is doing by having by focusing on on female characters or or non-binary characters in one case, um, and uh, and having the men play sort of supporting like minor supporting roles she's she's sort of flipping the script a little bit um on on the canon to a certain extent like there there are a lot of books that have mostly male characters and and only a few women here and there uh and it's not generally considered or until recently it hasn't been considered particularly remarkable if that's the case um so i i'm wondering if there's a certain amount of deliberation in that too and I think what she's saying is, you know, women have such complex lives. Uh, what better way to paint a canvas and make a story that is exclusively about or mainly about these women's lives? Of course, men do have some role to play. But uh, right now, this is their story. I do think as for myself as a reader, um, by having so many characters, um, she's they almost become more real people the more characters you have uh, rather than if you just had one of these characters and to go back to Bumi for for example then then if you make it about one person then that one person does have that burden of representation that we were talking about earlier where suddenly if if the book was just about Bumi Bumi doesn't become a person Bumi becomes your idea of the Nigerian immigrant and that experience so the more people you include, the more part of it's, it's an interwoven fabric, and these are all real people. They are not they are not just one thing. And I think you couldn't have said it better, uh, Mike. Uh, this isn't just about one person or one experience. There's so many. It, it's like a tapestry that's coming together. It's all interwoven. Just when you think you've learned about one character. You are, uh, you know, propelled into this different world of a different character and your eyes open and you make these discoveries, whether it be about language or experience or, um, you know, sexuality. So, yes, it is it is a beautiful uh, interwoven tale of different women. I think that's the key to it. Right. It's like there are all these characters and because the perspective keeps changing and there is this high degree of interconnectivity between everyone you do get it does paint a bigger picture even if it had all been from Amma's perspective or Yaz's perspective and you can describe the characters and their point of view but when you see it shift suddenly and now suddenly you're the mother or the daughter or the granddaughter of this character um, or the other way around then you you get a whole different whole different viewpoint and that, that really made it for me. Yeah, I love that about it. The fact that you could see characters from inside and then from outside, you know, or, or vice versa, um, that, that it sort of built in a lot of irony uh, to to the to the story, because nobody, nobody is seen by other people quite exactly the way they see them, see themselves. And I thought that added a, a, a layer of complexity and humor to it that was that was really enjoyable. And I think, Wendy, uh, I just want to add quickly that you're not looking at a person just through one lens, you know. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. this perspective of a of a woman as a daughter, a mother, a friend, a lover, a wife. Uh, you know, so many different ways to look at one person. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
and and at, at different times in their lives too. I mean, it's it's interesting that she sort of cuts in and out of different different phases of you know the people's childhoods or their when they're older and that sort of thing too. Exactly, you know, with the uh, Hattie who is ninety three years old. Yes. And Yaz, who is you know a, a teenager, so that intergenerational um, aspect is also uh, is is what is great to consider. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite examples of that is with Shirley. Um, I, I really like how she is kind of confronted with this character who's very racist to her in the, in the, in the idea of Penelope, right? They hate each other at first, essentially. Oh, but then as they, yes. as they kind of move forward, they become like the old guard together, even though Penelope's got quite a few years on her. And then they start grumbling together and then they build this kind of bond <laughs> over that. And when you get into Penelope's side of the story, you see how she is the way she is. Yes. And it really adds this whole other element. because this, And same with Shirley, because when you meet Shirley, she's this grumpy old person who's kind of strict and nobody likes. And then you get into her perspective. You're like, oh, but this is why, for very yeah. justifiable reasons, she becomes this, right? And through a very hard time in the 80s in Britain. I was a bit surprised at the end... Um, when uh, Evaristo chooses to bring all these characters together in the after party for Ama's uh, play. And so I was curious, uh, Eunice, um, what did you think when uh, she brought all these characters together and, and what was your sort of reading of, of that at the end? Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't really um, satisfied with the ending, Mike. Um, I know she brought all of the characters together, but I don't. I, I don't think it really um, brought together this um, the different stories that they had into a very into a conclusive whole. I guess I was looking for that a nice neat ending, but um, you know she did leave me with questions about what would have happened to certain characters at the end. And sorry, what was that other part of your question again? Why you why you think she brought them together, or just how did it impact your reading of it to suddenly have all these characters together? So so you know what I for me first of all I was wondering the book was about uh, twelve British black women and uh, very early on I reached out to Wendy and I said but Penelope is black uh, is white I'm sorry so what does it have to do with the book so I am happy that that issue was um, was you know I understood it better towards the end. Um, I must say that, you know, her, her discovery of uh, her roots, Penelope's roots towards the end was satisfying to know that, you know, we are all connected in some way. So that was very satisfying, that discovery. But I think that the bringing together, as I mentioned before, of all the characters at the end seemed a bit uh, disjointed. And um, I guess I felt it could have been tied up a bit more cleaner. Yeah, I, I, I completely get what you're saying there. Um, I, I agree that they're kind of are left. The denouement is kind of the play, and then it's over, and then that's kind of it for most of the characters, except for Penelope. And one wishes that you could see more of what happened to them or get some kind of closure. I guess the play is meant to be that, but it didn't quite work for me either. I kind of get what you're saying. Although I did find the very ending... That kind of epilogue was really was really powerful. 
See, I found, um, I actually quite liked the, the scene with the play and the after party. Um, I think it maybe depends on which parts of the book you were most captivated by, because I was really caught up in Shirley's story and Carol's story, which are two, which are related, Carol being Shirley's student in high school. Um, and there was this amazing, awkward moment when they meet up again for the first time in 20 years. And, uh, and it goes, they, they both are bringing sort of such conflicting expectations to that meeting. Uh, and it, it goes quite badly on the surface of it, but it does wind up sort of transforming Carol's ideas about Shirley's role in her life. Um, you know, you, Shirley never finds out about it, sort of typical Shirley, but, um, <laughs> but it's, uh, but I, I really, I really loved that moment. Those are great points. I, I did really like that scene with Shirley and Carol. Um, that just jumped back into my mind when you said it. Um, but I wanted to see more of that, I guess, is what I'm saying. I like that resolution, those resolutions, but I wanted more of them, I guess. And but then also... I know... <laughs> But also, Real life doesn't work that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. And Penelope's resolution too, with with Hattie, right? The the um that I I just I I wept buckets when that happened. I thought that was so <laughs> moving. Um, I really I I sort of I guess I saw it coming by the end, but I didn't see it coming before. Throughout most of Penelope's story, I was just like, she's a racist white lady, and uh, and then and then to see this resolution where she meets her mother, and she was taken away from her when she was so young. And, uh, and I just, so, so those were all storylines that I was very invested in. And I felt like they all paid off, they paid off gloriously, you know, but I think if you were focusing on other characters, like, yeah, Boomy doesn't get a lot of, uh, resolution at the end. And that would be frustrating if you were, if you were, if she was the one you were most invested in, I can see how that would be like, yeah, what, what, what gives? Like, why, why aren't we hearing more from her? You know? Mm -hmm. It definitely is for a, for a, not very long book, I would say, rather dense with the information that's packed in here about all these characters. Um, so I'm just realizing as, as you were t talking and making such great points that, you know, there is a lot you have to retain as you're going through the book um, in order in order to have that that payoff. So maybe it was my failure as a as a reader to not notice all those breadcrumbs that are coming through in the after party. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. The breadcrumbs, because that was that was one of the things I really enjoyed about it was this sort of sense that uh, Evaristo had been sort of building up to this in cert at least in certain of the subplots all the way through. There were a lot of sort of plot mechanics going on behind the scenes to make this all happen, um, and that's that's one of my favorite things for an author to do. Uh, so so yeah, I felt like I was in really good hands there. But again, I can sort of see if you were if you were focused on other storylines, then you wouldn't you wouldn't get that feeling from it. So so it really is. I mean, it's a it's a complex, diverse book, and and people are going to have complex, diverse experiences reading it. And you did make a good point, Wendy. We did not get the chance to talk about uh, you know other characters, but you know for a book club read, uh, it would be wonderful to go through each and every character because everybody deserves that justice yes um, you know to be able to analyze uh, those characters even more and that's or to a talk feeling. about their experiences yes yeah and that's and that's a feeling that you get from reading this book that each each individual in this book is is sort of merits their own book you know um, and then you and then by by extension each person in the world kind of merits their own book everybody has their own story uh, and each person is as, as complex and contradictory and interesting as the people in this book Exactly. And each uh, each character, 
um, you know, she is treated fairly. Um, and, and you get that impression that they, ha they each have their own voice, which is as powerful as, as the next uh, character. Yes, yes, that's right. Just going back for a moment about what you said about locking into different characters, I really feel like this book was designed to draw out certain details for certain readers and that naturally some people are going to respond to different elements of the writing um, and catch certain details from certain characters. So I know certain characters resonated with me versus characters that resonated with Wendy or Mike or Eunice, and we all have different answers for who our favorite was, which I feel like was really interesting as well, um, that what we saw it primarily as depended on where we resonated, which may be based on our personality or what we find interesting, but there's a lot of different connectivity. And I don't think any of us would say part of the reason, for instance, why I like Yaz is because I kind of don't like her, but that's why I like the character because it was fun to read because I didn't, I was kind of exasperated with her the whole time, but I liked that, you know? Yeah. That, that is a great point to me, Jason, because um, as I was reading this book, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not much into to different theories and philosophy, but I definitely was thinking of the intersectionality of all these characters. Um, and I didn't think about how the intersectionality of different readers would impact the reading as well. So, so your comment just makes me think that it really goes, it goes both ways. Um, it's not just, it's not just the, the different elements of these characters, but it's a, the different elements of, of me personally as the reader and how that would differ from someone else's reading experience. So I think I think you made a great point. Yeah, definitely. That's 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 really true. That uh, that each of us is sort of coming at it um, like each of the characters in the book with our own our own stories and our own baggage. Okay, so that was a very enjoyable book club episode. Uh, great discussion. Uh, so thank you, Eunice, for joining us today. Yes, thank you, Eunice. Welcome. You're Thanks welcome. so much. I hope I can do this again. <laughs> yes, we hope so too. Us too. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. Um, and on that note, this is the final episode of our second season. So on behalf of everyone who works on Shelve Under Podcast, I would like to say thank you for everyone that has listened and come along with us on this very interesting season that we've had. Um, we look forward to starting work um, on some new Shelve Under episodes for you. You can always find, uh, find us at shelveunder.ca reach out to us at shelvunder at tpl.ca if you want to get in touch. And thank you once again, everyone, for listening. Mike Warner, Jason Bazadian, Wendy Banks, and Eunice Rodriguez all work for the library. Music by Highs. Shelve Under Podcast is a Toronto Public Library production. It is produced by Wendy Banks, Jason Bazadian, Ted Belke, Michael Warner, and Christina Wong. With production assistance by George Panayotu. <laughs>